you would please turn in your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And, and that's on page 1827 in our Pew Bibles, if you're using those. This isn't the traditional Christmas passage, but if you come back tonight, Dr. Carroll will preach on the traditional Christmas passage. Please stand with me for the reading of God's holy and inspired word. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Father, we thank, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it stands forever that it outlasts us. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us now, that we would hear you and not me. That is what we desperately need, is a word from your spirit. So, Father, we pray that you would speak and that I would move out of the way. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. When I was a kid, I would spend summers at my grandmother's house. And one of the things that I remember us doing is watching wrestling with my grandmother. I don't know why my grandmother was into wrestling, but she was, up until a couple years ago when she stopped watching it. Um, And one thing I remember about the wrestlers is that they would have these grand entrances. They come in, theme song blaring, like light show flashing. Everyone stands up and they're clapping really loud or they're booing really loud. But you know that wrestler's in the building because they made a grand entrance. Christ also makes an entrance, but it's not like the wrestlers. It's a more humble entrance. It's more quiet. You see, he made an entrance in the world that was humble, and in that entrance, we learn that we are to live in humble unity in light of Christ's two comings. First, we see that we live in unity through humility. Look with me at verses 1 through 4. So Paul is writing to the church at Philippi. And he's writing from prison in the city of Rome. He's in prison because he was sharing the gospel. He's in prison for his faith, much like our brother Andrew Brunson in Turkey. So he sends this letter back by a man named Epaphroditus who came to help Paul out. In chapter 1, verse 27 through 30, he tells the believers that they're suffering as Christians. He says they're suffering for the sake of Christ. And he says they're to stand together for the gospel in one spirit and in one mind. Paul builds on what he has already said and tells them in verse 1 of chapter 2. If there, is any, if there is any encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, affection and sympathy, 
than they are to complete his joy. This is the foundation for what Paul is telling them to do. In chapter 1, verse 28, if you'll look with me, it says that they have been, it has been granted to them to suffer for the sake of Christ. So since they're suffering, they need encouragement. They need encouragement in the Lord. He wants them to know that they're not just sharing in the sufferings of the Lord, but they're actually sharing in the encouragement of Christ as well. Now that phrase, in Christ, if you look with me at verse 1, you'll see if there's any encouragement in Christ. That's a common phrase for Paul. He uses it a lot. The main way that he uses it is to talk about our union with Christ. In our salvation, we're so connected to Jesus that his life and his death, his sufferings and his glory count for us. He is the, he is the head and we are the body. That includes, like I said, the comfort from love and the participation in the spirit that Paul is saying that if you are connected to Christ, then you will be encouraged in him. You will have the comfort of God the Father, of the love of God the Father, and you will share in the Holy Spirit. He's telling us that this will cause us to have love, affection, and sympathy towards one another. What Paul is showing is that our foundation for loving one another is the love that we've been shown in the triune God. We're encouraged by our connection to Christ. We rest in the love of God the Father for us, and we share in the same indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Trinity is our foundation for love and affection towards one another, and also our foundation for unity. Paul tells the Philippians, and he tells us, that unity comes from being of one mind. He means that we set our minds on the same thing, on Christ. He tells them that they are to have the same love. That doesn't mean that we're all going to have the same level of love for everything. My grandmother probably loves wrestling more than you do. We're not going to have the same passions about the same things. And that can vary. That's okay. You're allowed to be passionate about different things. Because there is unity and diversity in the body of Christ. But what Paul is saying is that we should have the same love for one another that's based on the love of God. That's based on his love for us. We're to be of full accord, united in spirit. We're to have, we have the same Holy Spirit in each and every one of us. We need to focus on these things. Though we are all very different from one another, the beauty of the church is that we can sit here together, united by the Holy Spirit and united in the love of Christ. Paul also tells them again to be of one mind. That literally means of one thinking. We're to think the same way. Now that doesn't mean that you and I are going to think about situations the same way. A parent thinks about things very different than a single person does. A 73-year-old thinks about things very different than a teenager does. And that's okay. We may look at things differently because of our place in life or because of what's going on in our life, but we are to look at things the same way. We're supposed to have the same guide of thinking, Christ. We think about life. We think about this world through the lens of the word of God. That is what you look at everything through. So the fact that we are united with Christ and the same love of God through the Holy Spirit, that is what unites us in our single way of thinking. And like I said, he's going to tell us some guidelines about how to think. Look with me at verses 3 and 4. He says that we are to do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Paul puts his finger on two of the things that cause most of the problems in every single church. Rivalry and conceit. Oftentimes we can let our differences of opinion, of upbringing, 
social status, or whatever, cause factions between us. He also tells us that we can sometimes let our egos get in the way of serving Christ and his people to the best of our abilities. That word conceit, it means vain glory. It gives the idea of seeking out glory for yourself and not for Christ. We forget that we are united to the same Lord in the same spirit through the same love. Like I said, we're very different. We all I was raised in Gastonia. Most of y'all were raised in Clover. I know, I'm on the wrong side of the tracks. But we're all united by the Holy Spirit. So how do we do this? How do we live without rivalry and conceit? Paul tells us that it's through humility that we guard from division in the church. He tells us that rather than doing anything because of rivalry and conceit, we are in humility to count others more significant than ourselves. And we need to pause and think about humility for a moment. Humility is not thinking that you are worthless and everyone else is better than you. That's false humility. It's actually a form of pride because you're so proud of how awful you are and how better everyone else is than you. Humility that comes from God is realizing your insufficiency and resting in his powerful sufficiency for all things. That is humility. As one author said, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. We think of ourselves less often. That's what Paul means whenever he says we're not to look to our own interests, but to the interests of others. That doesn't mean that you get to neglect your family, you get to neglect your duty, or anything like that. No. What he's saying is you look outward as well as inward. You take care of your needs, and you look around and you see what needs that you can meet. When we understand our position as one that is loved by a triune God, It helps us to spread that love to others. We won't be selfish. We'll be concerned with the needs of others. So my brother uh, is a a Baptist. He's going to a Baptist seminary. He's going to be a Baptist pastor. I am clearly an ARP, and you all know I'm going to a seminary to be an ARP pastor. We disagree on a couple of things. So over many Sunday dinners, much to my mother's chagrin, we have had heated arguments And she's often thought we were mad at each other. But at the end of the argument, we usually disagree still. But I still love my brother. I'm still going to go help him trim his hedges because he doesn't know what he's doing. I'm still going to go and hang out with him tonight at our Christmas Eve at my my grandparents' house. We're we're still going to do those things because he's my family. He's blood. We share that common bond. Likewise, in this church... We are connected through the common bond of Christ, of his blood, of his love, and of his spirit. We are connected by something that is stronger than any family. Instead of focusing on how different we are, let us focus on what is common between us, on Christ, on his spirit. Remember that we're connected by, like I said, a bond that is stronger than any family. We're bound in Christ. We are to count others more highly than ourselves. Look past your disagreements and your differences. Look at why you do what you do. Paul wants us to check our motivations for everything that we do. It should be motivated by Christ. Next, we see that we live in humility because Christ came humbly. Here's the Christmassy part. In verse 5 through 8, Paul talks about Christ's coming. And he says, 
So he's already given us this foundation for why we're to be humble. And now he's going to give us an example of being humble. We're to be humble because Christ showed great humility in the way that he came. He tells us that we are to have this mind in us that, is in, that belongs to us if we are in Christ Jesus in verse 5. He says, as the body of Christ, we have access to the mind of Christ. So what mind did Jesus have? Paul answers this for us. Look with me at verse 6. He says that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Whenever Paul says that Jesus was in the form of God, what he means is that Christ is God. He means that word form, it tells us that Christ has all of the qualities, all of the characteristics that make up being God. Whatever you think of, or whatever, more accurately, whatever the Bible says is about God, that is an attribute that Christ has. He's everywhere. He knows everything. That's what Paul is telling us. He is 100% fully God. He tells us that Christ has always existed as God, and he always will. And that's so important for us to understand. That's what makes Christmas amazing. That's what, and that's how amazing his coming is for us. He wasn't partially God. He didn't give up anything about being God. He was always God, even when he came to this earth. And that helps us understand what Paul says when he, when he tells us in verse 6 that Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, by equality with God, he means that though Christ, since Christ is very nature God, he has all the rights and all the privileges that come as being God. He is worshipped by thousands of angels. He has all the, the power and the glory and the honor that comes with being God. He had that with the Father and the Spirit from before the world began. And the phrase there, held on to, it has the idea of a death grip. You ever held on to something so tightly that it hurt your hand? That's what Paul's talking about. He says, Jesus did not count equality with God, the honor, the glory, and the praise as something to hold on with a death grip. But he let it go. <clears throat> Jesus is willing to give up all that honor and glory to come to this earth to save us, his people. Paul shows us this in the next verse. He tells us that Jesus made himself nothing, and he did it by taking on the form of a servant. And that word means slave. So Jesus takes on the form of a slave, has a little bit more power than a servant. <clears throat> Excuse me. Jesus went from eternal God, enthroned above the angels, praised by the saints of old, with honor and glory, with God the Father and the Spirit forever, and he became a slave for us. That is what makes Christmas amazing. That is what makes tomorrow so beautiful. He wasn't pretending to be human either. He was a real human. Like you and I, he laughed, he bled, he cried, he was happy, he got hungry, he got thirsty, and he slept. We see this all throughout the Gospels. Jesus was truly man, and he was still fully divine. If you look at verse 7, it says that he took on the form of a servant by being born in the likeness of men. That doesn't mean, like I said, Jesus was pretending. It means that he had everything it means to be a person, to be a human. But there was still something different. He was still God. This is Christ. He's truly God and he's truly man. This is the essence of your faith. That is what we rest in. That Jesus is God and he's man. Without Jesus being God, he cannot save us. Without Jesus being man, he cannot represent us to die on the cross for us. He has to be both. And he has to be completely both. 
In verse 8, we see something even more amazing. Though, it, though it's humbling for him to come as a man, he goes even further. Look what Paul says. He says that when Jesus came in human forth, he humbled himself, and he came, and he came in the form of a servant to be obedient to the point of death. Jesus fully obeyed the law of God. In Sunday school and youth group, we're going through the Ten Commandments. And I know as I go through the Ten Commandments, I realize how much we break the Ten Commandments. Jesus never broke the Ten Commandments. He never broke any of the laws of God in word, thought, or deed. That's a tall order. You and I can't do it. But Jesus did. He was perfectly obedient to his Father's will. When Jesus comes at Christmas as a helpless babe in a manger... He comes and he says, Father, not my will, but your will be done. He says it again in John chapter 17, whenever he's about to go die on the cross. Not my will, but your will be done. This is Jesus' Jesus's obedience. But did you notice what Paul does in verse 8? He goes even further. He tells us how Jesus died. Now, we all know how Jesus died. He died on a cross. He says, even death on a cross. Why would Paul emphasize that? He does it for two reasons. For the cultural stigma of crucifixion and the curse of crucifixion. Crucifixion in the first century was a horrible way to die. It was humiliating. People were often crucified without clothes. They were beaten before it. They were openly mocked. And they were openly mocked while they were dying. It was the death of a criminal. If you went anywhere in the first century, anywhere that was Roman at all, and you said, the Messiah was, was crucified on a cross. They would say, what are you talking about? He was a criminal? It, it had this cultural stigma. But more than that, Paul mentions that there was a curse of crucifixion. He, he's referencing back to Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23. Now in that passage, it says, anyone that is hung on a tree is cursed by God. What that means is that Jesus, he literally became a curse For you and I. He was cursed by God the Father. This is Jesus Christ. Beaten and humiliated by men. And cursed by God. For you and I. So that we could come into the presence of the Father. You see, Jesus didn't look to his best interest. He didn't consider what was best for him. He considered what was best for you and for me. For his people. He laid aside his glory to come down. So that he might be born in a manger. In a smelly, stinky manger. And then to die on a cruel cross so that we could be with him. That's what Christmas is about. He considered the need for our sins to have our sins paid for greater than his need to have glory. He's the ultimate example of humbling ourselves and, li- and counting others more significant than ourselves. And listen, if the Lord of glory can consider everything he deserved as God as something to let go of, so that he could count us more highly than himself, then you and I can count each other in this congregation more highly than ourselves. We can follow Jesus' example. That's why he dies. He dies so, A, we can have our sins paid for, and B, can follow his example. There's a missionary uh, named Paul London, and he tells a story about his time in Africa. He says while he was there, he was in a really dry place where they built these wells. Now, they don't make wells the way that, that we do. You know, we, we used to make wells, and we would have a bucket on a string. It would go down, and we would pull the string up, and there was water. That's not what they did here. They built these long and these deep tunnels down into the ground, and people would have to crawl down there 
and they would take a rag and they would soak up the moisture and they would wring it in a bucket and they would do that till the bucket was full and then they would take it back up. That's how they got it. So one time in this village, there was a strong man who was going down and on his way down, he fell and he broke his leg and he couldn't get out. He was stuck down there in the mud and, he, and down there in the mud in the water. <clears throat> so many people from the village came down there and they were trying to get him out. But like I said, this was a strong guy. They couldn't get him out. So eventually they went and they talked to the chief. So the chief comes, he's wearing his headdress and he's wearing his robe, and he sees the man in the pit. He takes off his robe, takes off his headdress, and he goes down into the pit. He grabs the man and he pulls him back out. When the chief takes off his headdress and he takes off his robe, he doesn't stop being the chief. He's still the chief, just like Christ. When Christ lays aside his glory, he's still God. But he lays down his glory so that he can humble himself to save you and I, to draw us out of the pit. So we should follow the example of our Lord. Don't cling so tightly to glory that you can't live in humility. Oftentimes, I know myself, we can get caught up in what we deserve, that we miss opportunities to share the love of Christ. It's so hard to sacrifice the things that we think we're owed. It's so hard to have other people count more highly than ourselves because we have such a high opinion of ourselves. Paul says that we should count others more highly than ourselves. We need to look at ourselves as sinners in need of God's grace and everyone else around us. We need to look to Jesus' example, the most worthy one in all the universe. And he esteems us more highly than himself. It's amazing. Christmas is a time of year that we look around and we try to bless people the best way we can. We buy the best present. We wrap it the best way because we want people to, un- un- we want people to open it and feel happy and be blessed. That shouldn't just be a Christmas thing. We should look all year for ways that we can bless one another, for intentional ways that we can bless one another. We should follow our our Lord's example. In our last point, we see that we live in humility because Christ will return exalted. Look at the last three verses, 9 through 11. Paul moves to the exaltation of Christ after the resurrection. In verse 9 he says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Paul's not saying that Jesus has earned something that he never had. Paul's saying that God is giving Jesus back what he laid aside. He's getting all the glory and all the honor and all the praise that goes with being God. This is the Father saying, I accept everything that Jesus did for his people. The sacrifice counts. They're saved. They're free from their sins. That's That's what it is saying. And Paul tells us in verse 10 and 11... That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in all of creation. And every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now that didn't happen at the first coming of Christ, but it will happen at the second coming of Christ. I know at Christmas we talk about the first coming. The humble Jesus as a babe in the manger. And that's extremely important. But as we look at the first coming of Christ, we should always have his second coming in in the back of our mind. Because he is going to return. Whenever Christ returns, Paul tells us that everyone is going to bow. He says, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. He's including the entire scope of creation. No one's going to get left out. Those in heaven are the angels and the the demons, those that live in the heavenly places. Those on earth are those who are alive on the earth whenever Christ returns. And those under the earth are those who have passed away before Christ has come. And here's what Paul says they're going to do. 
whether they're believers or not, whether they're angels or demons, they are going to bow, and they are at the name that was bestowed upon Christ. When that's mentioned, everyone is going to bow, and everyone is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, one thing we don't see on face value, if you read this, and you you do get a lot of it, but if you just read this once, you might miss something. Paul's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Isaiah 45, 23, which says, To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. And who's speaking? If you look at verse 8 in Isaiah 45, you'll see that it's the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. If you look in your Old Testament, if you see capital L-O-R-D, that means Yahweh, God's covenant name. Whenever the Old Testament was translated into Greek, this is the Old Testament that Paul used. It used this word, kurios. It's a Greek word. It means Lord. That's what they would use for Yahweh's name, for God's name. So, in Philippians chapter 2, 11, he's applying Isaiah 45, 23 to Jesus. What that means is that Paul is saying that everyone in all of creation will say that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. They'll say that he is the one true eternal God of all creation. They'll say that he is the sovereign Lord. See, the name that was bestowed upon Jesus wasn't Jesus. There were many Jesuses running around. But the name that was bestowed on Jesus was Yahweh, the name that is above all names, the name that the Israelites were told to not utter in a profane way, that they were to keep sacred. Whenever Paul writes this, everyone would understand what he is doing. All of the Jews understood, even the Greeks understood, because he's using Greek. Remember, Paul's writing to Roman citizens, so here's what they would get from this. A, they would get that Jesus Christ and Yahweh is, is Yahweh, and they would get B, that he and not Caesar is Lord. You recall from elementary school, high school, and middle school that Caesar was the guy who ruled over the Roman, over the Roman world. They had a creed, the, Greek, the, the Romans did. Caesar is Lord. Christians took an objection to that. They said, no, Jesus is Lord. Paul writes the first Christian creed here. It's a lot shorter than the Apostles' Creed. But he says Jesus Christ is Lord. What this means is that he is Yahweh. He is the sovereign God over all the universe. And it also means that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess This is what unifies us as a church, that we serve the same God. We serve the same God that made the world. We serve the same God that gave Moses the tablets. We serve the same God that sent his people into exile and brought them back. It's the same God that sent Jesus. It is Jesus. We're we're living in a dark world, and we're to be lights in that dark world, lights for Christ. Because one day, like I said, every knee is going to bow. And every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. We're to follow Jesus' example. Don't look for glory on the earth because true glory comes whenever we're made like Jesus at his final day, at the final day. When we focus on the comings of Christ, all of our differences, they melt away. See, we see that Jesus is going to come and he's going to crack the sky and ride in on a cloud and every knee will bow, whether they want to or not. See, this is our goal, that when Christ comes back, he would find us living in unity. He would find us focused on his comings, focused on his first coming that saves us from those sins, and focused on his second coming, the eager expectation that we will be made like him. Like I said, 
One thing needs to be understood. On that day, every knee is going to bow, whether we want to or not. Paul says, when Paul says that everyone's going to confess Jesus Christ as Lord, it's not necessarily a confession because they believe, they believe it. But the demons will bow down and say, Jesus Christ is Yahweh. Unbelievers will bow down and say, Jesus Christ is Yahweh, even though they don't believe it. It won't save them. That is the day of Christ's judgment. He came as a humble baby to save you and I from our sins. And we are to spread that gospel. That's what Christmas is about. I know I'm talking about the second coming on the day we celebrate the first coming. But what I want you to hear this morning, if if you don't know Jesus, but today is just a day to you. If tomorrow is just a day that you get presents, repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He came as a baby in a manger so that we could know him and love him. And he will come as a conquering king. And he will establish his kingdom on the earth. That is what we see at Christmas. The humble Savior will come as the Lord. And we will bow before him. So this year on August 21st, most of us saw the same thing. We were all probably doing the same thing. There was this total solar eclipse. So a lot of people, they, they traveled to go see it. Like If you were like me, you went outside and looked out with special glasses and saw it. Maybe you watched it on the TV. We were kind of unified in our purpose. Well, in the same way, the church is unified in its purpose. Though we all kind of accomplish it differently, we all spread the gospel. We all glorify the Lord. We all serve God in different ways. We have one purpose, to serve our Lord, to glorify him. So work with the eager expectation that Christ is coming back. This Christmas, celebrate the first coming, but don't neglect the second. Don't neglect that Jesus is going to return. Remember that true glory comes in Christ, and it comes whenever we humbly serve one another. Whenever we feel unappreciated, whenever we uh, are whenever we feel like we're tired and we don't want to do anything. Remember, we don't do this for the applause of men. We don't do this for the pats on the back. We do this because we love our Lord and we love his people. We do this because we want the people of Clover to know God, to know Christ, because we love them the same way he loved us. We strive for the day that Christ returns and he looks at us and he says, Well done, my good and faithful servant. That's what we live for. That's what unifies us as a church. That we can look forward to the returning Messiah. Again, do you know him? Is Christ your Lord? Or is he just some baby? Because he is the Lord. If you don't know him, don't Don't push away the call of the Holy Spirit. Believe in him. And if you do know him, live together in unity. Be focused on Christ and let your differences melt away. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for today. Lord, it's Christmas. Thank you. Jesus Christ has come and he has saved us from our sins. But Father, if we don't know you today, let us turn to you. Let us look to the Savior and let us cry out in faith. 
And if we do, we pray that you would help us to live in humility. You would help us to count others more highly than ourselves. You would help us to live in unity. Lord, because of our love for you. We say these things in the name of our Savior, who lived and died so that we might know you. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.